thank You for Your Word. We pray You teach us from it. You instruct us in it. You correct us by it. And You comfort us with it. We ask, O Lord, that Your Spirit would not only, by Your Spirit would we not only understand it, but that we would embrace the obedience that it calls us to. And more than that, that we would embrace the rock of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only one that can enable obedience to Your Word. And it is in His name that we ask these things. And God's people said, Amen. The Eighth Commandment. You could say, what's mine is God's. What's mine is God's. You could say, the Eighth Commandment. Stealing and stewardship. Well, there was a sheet of paper that was on your chair when you came in that had a picture on the back of a Norman Rockwell. Of course, that picture appeared in the Saturday Evening Post many years ago when a woman, uh, depicting a woman buying a turkey from a local butcher. And behind the counter is this jolly butcher. He's so excited to you know, sell this turkey to this woman on the scale and he has his ample belly and his his, uh, apron around his front and you see the pencil behind his ear and he is helping what appears to be a respectable looking woman who is there perhaps in her 60s and she too looks pleased. And the two of them are exchanging a smile with each other, as you'll notice. They are looking at each other almost as if they were sharing a joke. But the joke is on both of them. Because the the painting shows exactly what is going on in secret. For if you'll notice the photo, the butcher has his index finger upon the scale. And he is pushing it down perhaps to cause the weight to go up so that he may exact a higher price. But the innocent looking, sweet, smiling, 60 year old grandmother, she on the other hand is smiling also looking at the scale with her index finger pushing the bottom of the scale up. Both of them trying to get a better deal. But what you truly see is a picture of the violation of the Eighth Commandment. For in this photo is a picture of a butcher and a lovely lady trying to steal. Now, they probably would not try to go out and rob a bank. They probably would not even try to go rob a car. In fact, don't you know that butcher would be absolutely indignant if anyone accused him of stealing? After all, he's the local butcher. And if a customer had given him a bad check, there isn't a doubt in my mind that he would be on the phone immediately to the police. And yet the one that would have given him the bad check would have found nothing wrong. And of course the same could be said of the the grandmother, the lady standing there trying to tip the scale, so to speak, in her favor. She wouldn't do anything ever, ever 
that would, would anyone could openly accuse her of stealing. But if she was stolen from, she would do whatever it took to have her equanimity restored. Well, the bottom line is in this, past, in this great Norman Rockwell, you have a picture that could be aptly named on the take. On the take. Everyone knows across the earth that stealing is wrong. Everyone knows this. Stealing is wrong. Even people that do not read the Bible know that stealing is wrong. Exodus 20.15 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 19 says, Thou shalt not steal. And to steal is simply to take something that does not belong to you. The word in Hebrew is ganaf, G-A-N-A-F. It is spelled in the Hebrew G-N-F, but it's ganaf. And it literally means this, to carry something away by stealth. To carry something away by stealth. To give it a more legal term or legal identification, it is to appropriate someone else's property unlawfully. Now as you'll notice, the verse is very small. Thou shalt not steal. Because this verse cannot die a thousand qualifications. Thou shalt not steal means you shall, will not, cannot, must not take anything that doesn't belong to you, period. Ganoff, for example, this idea of stealing covers all conventional types of theft in the Bible. You have burglary, which is breaking into a home to commit a theft, or robbery, which is taking property directly from another person. There's larceny, which is taking without permission and not returning it. There's hijacking, which is using the force of uh, using force to take goods in transit. There's shoplifting, which means taking items during uh, during business hours without paying for them. There's pickpocketing. There's purse snatching. The term also covers the wide range of exotic and complex thefts such as embezzlement, which is fraudulent taking of money or other goods entrusted to one's stewardship. There is the extortion, which is getting money from someone by means of threat or the misuse of authority. And racketeering, which is obtaining money illegally. That's all covered under this word. And that's only a partial list. I was reading an illustration that a hotel, a brand new hotel opened some time ago and at the end of the year when they were doing the accounting on the assets, 38,000 spoons, 18,000 tiles, 355 coffee pots and 100 Gideon Bibles had been stolen in the first year. People steal from the government all the time by underpaying their taxes. You have theft at work where employees take things that don't belong to them or take sick days when they just really want time off. Uh, they, they, they pad expense accounts. They go as far as embezzling. They, those are, and by the way, those aren't victimless crimes. Employee theft of time and property cost American businesses over $200 billion a year. 
And for their part, employers steal from their workers. They demand longer hours than contracts allow. They downsize their workforce to improve their profits, and then workers who still have a job end up doing their own work plus someone else's. Large corporations steal from the public. They keep some of their transactions off the books. They hide their losses. And uh, one of the worst offenders in recent history, of course you remember, uh, during 9-11 what really caused the collapse of America was not the collapse of the towers, but was the collapse of Enron. When Enron fell, you had uh, this vast energy company with this spectacular collapse 21 years ago, and it cost people their life savings. That's when my 401k became a 201k because of that. You had businesses like Arthur Anderson, WorldCom, Adelphia, Rite Aid, and other well-known corporations caught cheating the public. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you something. There are many business practices that are immoral just as there are many home practices that are immoral. Even if they're not illegal, they're violations of the Eighth Commandment. And they're violations because all we need to all remember that all those whereby we acquire the possessions and monies of our neighbors, when such devices depart from sincere affection to a desire to cheat or in some manner harm, those are all considered theft. It's John Calvin. And similarly, Martin Luther wrote, we break the Eighth Commandment whenever we take advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing that results in a loss of him. How, such business, how much businesses fail to measure up to this simple standard. Much of what falls into this category is known as the weasel zone in business. And it is the gigantic gray area between good moral behavior and outright felonious activities. Well, when you consider these things... You can continue and go on and say there's insurance fraud. There's filing of false claims. There's deliberate cost overruns to make differences between estimates and final prices whenever it is contracted. There is the theft of intellectual property and the violation of copyrights, including unlawful duplication of music and videos. There's plagiarism. There's the misappropriation of someone else's work. And, the, and there is identity theft in which personal information that belongs to another becomes the possession of someone else. There are countless ways to steal. Countless ways. But an ancient catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism, question number 110, says something magnificent about the Eighth Commandment. It simply says this, God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, but also such wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money, and usury. Usury is the charging of interest. For example, when President Obama became president, one of the things that happened, there was credit card reform, and in that credit card reform, there had been a cap on how much interest a credit card company could charge you. That cap was raised to 30%. That's usury. 
That's taking advantage of your position. That is flat out stealing according to the scripture. It's usury because it is what it is. Now it's lawful in America, but I'm going to show you how the Eighth Commandment has something to do with the U.S. Constitution in just a moment. But that's usury. And we're not to defraud our neighbor in any way, whether by force or show of right. Let me say that again. We are not to defraud our neighbor, rather by force or by show of right. We are Christians. It is our primary duty to show our righteousness, not our rightness. We are different. We are sheep led to the slaughter. Our lives are to be laid upon the altar of Jesus Christ. We are to be living sacrifices. We are the last people that are to be running around speaking about our rights without speaking first of our righteousness and demonstrating it. It will take generations to teach the church that concept. In addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse of squandering the gifts that He has given each one of us in Christ. And so, let me give you two things on why stealing is a sin. And then I'm going to transition to stewardship. I want to show you first of all why stealing is a sin. Two reasons. Stealing is a sin against God, number one, because every theft is a failure to trust in God's provision. Every theft is a failure to trust in God's provision. Whenever we take something that does not belong to us, we deny that God has given us or is able to give us everything we truly need. Therefore, keeping the Eighth Commandment is a practical exercise in God's providence. So the first way that sin is that stealing is a sin against God is that it is the failure to trust in God's provision. But here is the second one that I find the most interesting. The second reason stealing is a sin against God because it is assault it is an assault on God's provision for others. It is an assault on God's provision for others. You steal against God because you rob someone else of what God has provided for them. Wow. Never thought of it that way. It's a sin against God for me to steal because I'm not trusting in His providence. And, if, and it's a sin against God because I steal the provision God has given to another person if I take what is not mine. Isn't that something? Well, you know what this teaches us? This teaches us the concept of personal property. This teaches us the concept of personal property. And that is the positive side of the Eighth Commandment. 
So let me show you that on this sheet I gave you with a picture, with a picture, if you go to the other side, this is similar to what I emailed you last week. Look at 142, question 142. It says, what are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment, besides the neglect of duties required, are theft, robbery, man-stealing, receiving anything that is stolen, fraudulent dealing, false weights and measures, removing landmarks, yada, yada, yada. And all the Bible verses for every one of those. And since you're such a good class, you're going to go home and prove that up. That was written back in about 1649. And it has stood the test of time. Go and test it. Go look and see if that's what it says. So what is forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? That's the negative side. Stealing. That's the negative side. Stealing. You rob, you, you, you deny yourself the, the trust in God's provision for you by stealing and taking from another. You are taking from them the provision God has given them. So stealing is very negative. It's very, very bad. And in fact, one, one uh, internet site, Ligonier Ministries, has an interesting article. It says, Stop Stealing! And it says this, it says, Few facts know, few acts show the deep depravity of the human heart more than theft. Thievery shows a particular contempt for another human being as well as a deep desire for that person to suffer. When we take from others what we have labored diligently to what they have labored diligently to earn, we scorn their efforts. Moreover, theft demonstrates hatred towards God, for when we steal the blessings that the Lord has given to other people, we reveal a deep-seated conviction that our Creator was wrong. He was wrong to distribute His gift in a way that He has, and we show our sinful belief that we know better than God how we and others should be blessed. Now, if you want to make this into a political message, you can. I'm giving you a fundamental basis on why there cannot be socialism. The right of private property. I want you to imagine two people out fishing on the side of the lake. Two men fishing beside the lake. One man has his fishing pole and he is casted into the lake. And there his bobber is floating on top of the water and he's holding his mouth just right, waiting for that bite. And he is, he's facing the sun and all is well because he knows a fish is coming. And seated right next to the man is a bucket, a five-gallon bucket under which he puts his fish that he catches from the lake. And enter the second man. The second man is not facing the lake. The second man has his fishing pole, but it is not cast. He is actually sitting next to the bucket. And he is holding his fishing pole with its line going into the bucket. The first one is the picture of capitalism. The second one is the picture of socialism. So I want you to write this down. They don't teach this in college. Socialism equals stealing. Socialism equals stealing. Do you know why socialism has not worked in any country in the world ever? Because people know stealing's wrong. And so now 
You hear of wealth redistribution. I said this last week to you. I said we do not have a government right now that it, well, we haven't for some time, that is for the people. We currently have a government that is on the people. Not against, on the people. Regulation, regulation, taxation, death and taxes. Those are certainties. And so what you see here is this concept of stealing is not just limited to outright theft, but it was, it's taking another person's personal property. Okay? Which is what God has chosen to provide for them. But there is something else regarding this personal property. And, and regarding this objective truth, we find out that the commandment is... Ir- now listen, this is important for you to understand so that you can go out of here and say, this is why CNN and Fox don't understand this. This is why people that don't follow the Lord can't understand this. You must understand this. This commandment is irrelevant. The Eighth Commandment, do not steal unless the Lord has established the right to private property. And the Lord has established the right to write the right to private property when He gave the Eighth Commandment. And it is enshrined in the United States Constitution in the Fifth Amendment. The right to personal property. It's enshrined. It is the law of the land. And it assumes that this prohibition can be negated, some people do, that if somebody is wealthy. So therefore, if you have the haves, then it's all right for the have-nots to steal against them. That is not true. That is not in God's economy. I'm all for billionaires and trillionaires. I just wish we had one that came here. Too often, politicians and others in our society, even professing Christians, listen to me, speak as if being wealthy is inherently evil and otherwise not the best way to live. Let me tell you something. If you look at the Bible... If you go look at the Scripture, people that we learned about since we were little bitty kids in Sunday school were extremely wealthy that were some of the greatest saints of the Bible, like Abraham. How about Joseph of Arimathea? They were wealthy. David was wealthy. It is sinful sinful only to put our hope in our wealth And the poor can trust in money as much as anyone else does. A wealthy person can trust in money as much as a poor person does. But what a wealthy person has is what God in His providence has provided for them. Now if they got it by hook or by crook, they're going to have to settle up with God. But that doesn't give myself, me and myself or my own, the right to steal it from them. And it certainly doesn't give the government the right to do it either because it's personal property. But the problem is that's where the rub comes because we think it's mine. And that's why then we need to consider this idea of the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. It says no citizen 
should be deprived of his or her property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. That's called easement. Given the unquestionable influence of the Ten Commandments on constitutional law, right there is a reinstatement of the Eighth Commandment from Exodus 20.15. Where must be respect, and we must respect, the property that belongs to others. But I want to caution us. As wonderful as that sounds, and as true as it is, all things that belong to you and I in Christ are not our property, but our stewardship. And so let me transition from stealing to stewardship and let me take this marvelous opportunity to teach you a little bit of theology to show you why it's happening the way it is today. For just a moment, and you say, well, what is stewardship? Well, that's what question 141 is on this. It'll show you what does the Eighth Commandment require. That's what it requires. Now, don't read that for now. You read that later. That's why I gave it to you, okay? That's all I'm going to say about that. Brothers and sisters, as I transition from the concept of stealing to stewardship, I want to tell you about a change that happened in Christianity about the 1800s, which is felt terribly, terribly bad today. And all of you will recognize its feeling, its sting. Prior to the 1800s, there was really no authority under which any Christian lived except the Word of God. The law was written by that. Europe was moved by it. America was born from it. But in the 1800s, a change came about. A change came about under the influence of a man named Schlauermacher. I don't want you to write it down, but his name was Schlauermacher. He was a German. Always need to beware of German theologians. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Listen to me. This is not just to take time. German, Germans took the Reformation and they said, instead of being Puritans, we will be pious. And so what they did is they formed the Pietist movement. And the Pietist movement simply said this, I can be absolutely devout completely committed totally in every way to the Lord Jesus Christ, believe all the fundamentals of the Scripture and be gloriously saved in my spiritual life, but then I can step into my business life and live in a completely different kind of life. And they were called the Pietists. A man who was a Pietist was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who you see in German history as the theological background for the Valkyrie assassination attempt. If you want to read a magnificent book that you cannot put down, it's Eric Metaxas' book, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, I'm getting chill bumps telling you. I started reading that book in Lubbock Airport flying to Dallas once, and I don't remember any point where I ever put it down. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I have it. I think I've loaned it to somebody and you need to bring it home. 
Uh, but under the influence of Schleiermacher, he taught this. He said, listen, listen. The religious consciousness of man is to be substituted for the Word of God as the source of theology. Faith in Scripture as an authoritative or the authoritative revelation of God was thus discredited in the universities and human insight based on man's own emotional or rational apprehensions became the standard of religion. That has not changed today. And that's why when people come to the journey, they wonder what is different. Because at the journey we do not leave it to our own rationalization and reasoning. There is one word, and it's God's. And this has impacted all of the West, including America. Religion, listen to me, this is how you know this is real. Religion took the place of God as the object of theology. And we started saying phrases like this, I'm going to church instead of I'm going to worship. Monday I was sitting at Cracker Barrel with the hymn book and I guess I was making some noise teaching myself that song. And the sweet lady taking care of me, she said, Oh, Brother James, are you getting ready for church? And I said, No, I'm having it right now. This has affected us. You look now, if the basis of theology is on reason, then what difference does it make if the law says you don't steal? Because if you can make religion whatever you want it to be, then guess what? You can do the same with the law. And then if you're a Christian and you are somehow infected with this disease, which we all are, not intentionally, not here, we're all infected, what happens to us? Then we can determine what things are right in our own mind and the way we behave. And we do not then pursue what is righteous. We pursue what is our right. And we show force of our right instead of show strength by our our righteousness. And so, let me tell you how this affected things, and then this will end the theology portion as we move move to stewardship. Stewardship, all of you in here believe this. You believe God's everywhere. There's no doubt about it. We all believe that. That's called transcendence. God transcends everything. He's everywhere. He's all over. He's in and of and through and out of and between and on top and bottom and whatever else. Everything. That is the transcendence of God. But what Schleiermacher did when he introduced this rationality of religion over the theology of God revealed in the Word, he did one thing terrible. Now when I tell you that... all right. Violating the Eighth Commandment 
is stealing what has providentially been provided for someone else. I use the word providence, you see, okay? What has been provided, providence. What has been provided. We sit there and say in the transcendence, well, one day they're going to pay because we know that God is everywhere and they will get theirs. What Schlauermacher did though is he removed the other component of God's transcendence and that is God's immensity. God's immensity. That is, God is eminent in everything He transcends. What does eminent mean? He is all-powerful in everything. And the teachings of Schleiermacher, which then came to America in the 1900s, and is what led to abortion in this country, what led to the rise of the feminist movement, which was not started by women, but by men for a way to figure out how to double the tax base and bring the kids to the government schools. That's all it did. And it objectified women. All of these people that are crossing the border right now, you know what's going to happen to them? They're all, going to be, they're all being objectified. Because the ones that are going up to the north, what's happening to them? They're not getting taken care of. And yet we're welcoming them here. And the, and the reality of it is, that is, a, that is a, that's stealing. You're stealing the Imago Day from those people. The best thing to do is put them on a bus and turn it south. That would be the best thing for them. But it's worse. They're coming to the land of free. They are coming here to be exploited. Make no doubt about it. They are being exploited. And by doing so, the government is stealing from us. But it is because of this belief. God is everywhere, but He's not powerful in everything. Oh, but He is. Well, I'm glad you said that. Because that's why then you must look at your property not as yours, but as a stewardship. Because what you have, He has given you. People with my education and my mind... No, it had to be given. My third grade teacher, the second time I went through third grade, would say it had to be given. He was dumber than a box of rocks. When I was in school at Southwestern, I was still dumber than a box of rocks. Dumbest guy in my class. The reality of it is, people are trying though to look at what they have and to hold on with it so tight that it will be theirs no matter what, by hook or crook. And I'm going to tell you, go home, pour some oil in your hand and squeeze it as tight as you can. And when you're done, you'll have no oil left. That's not stewardship. Stewardship is a, recog- is a recognition that I have been given something to steward while I am here. That's one of the reasons why I finally decided I'm going to go nip in the bud this weight issue in my life. It was killing me. It is a matter of stewardship. It was a matter of stewardship. And when you're thinner, you can look good in a cheap suit. Because there's nothing rich about this, let me tell you. I'm not trying to say I look good, but if you did say that, it would be nice. But ever, however I look, it, the looks are what I've been given by the Lord. And so there's the idea of simply this, that you can then say, well, what is biblical stewardship? 
Well, you move from stealing, which has the idea of transcendence, and you move into stewardship, which has the idea of eminence. And you have to just you you have to make a decision. Either you believe God is in control of every single thing you have, or something else. And that's where the rubber hits the road. And so you have this concept of stewardship. Let me give you this. A steward is someone who cares for someone else's property. All that is yours is the property of God. You are a steward of it. That's what the Bible says. He, we are not free to use it however we please, but only to manage it in accordance with the Master's intention. What is His intention? That we use it to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's it. This is our situation exactly. Whatever we possess is God's property and He has given us the sacred trust of looking after it and this is the way it has been since the beginning. Adam did not own any property. He just managed it and the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. All that we have is His. And good stewarding means that we take care of what we have been giving and not letting things fall in despair or ill repair. It means working hard. It means to bring up the last, it, it, mean, it brings us to the last aspect in simply this. It, it's using what God has given us to give away to other people that may have need. Good stewardship starts with meeting the needs of your family. And, and it goes on from there, meeting the needs of your family. It, I want to go back to the illustration I used last week when I made this comment. I don't think it came across clearly, so I want to say it again. You know, you hear these, you hear folks, they're, they're so wonderful, you know, we, we need to just be just, well, almost, I think they'd want us to bow down and worship them. But they say things like this, I just want to go to a church where the pastor loves the lost. Well, let me ask you this question. Katie's getting married in a couple weeks, and I'm going to do it. But I can tell you this much. I'm not marrying her to a man that loves all the single women. I'm marrying, him to a, marrying you to a man that loves you. You're the bride. And when you sit there and you put that kind of pressure on a preacher, you're saying, preacher, I want you to spend all your time amongst the lost instead of with me. Well, there's a reason why. Because most people don't want a preacher messing in their business. And that's exactly what preachers are to do when it comes to that which is spiritual. Oh, I go to a church whose pastor loves the lost. Well, I'll tell you what you'll see. You'll find a big, gigantic institution that is a celebration of American capitalism with a big cross stamped on it. You go to a place where a man loves the, the people, his sheep, and, that, and his job is to feed the sheep. You will find people in heaven that will have the biggest houses and land and responsibility because they were faithful and taught how to become sanctified for their glorification. It's just ridiculous. And the reason I would say that is because folks don't believe in the imminence of God. 
There is an eminency into God, His provision. God provides churches to be big. He provides them to be small. But in all things, we must be stewards of what we have that it may be used for Him. So, I'm really finished. It's 11.36. Brothers and sisters, listen to me while you don't get slayed in the Spirit, because I said that. Because I need to be a steward of the time we have. There's a Greek word I want to close with, and it's, it's, it's not an old Greek word, but it's called oikonomia. Oikonomia. It's the word economy. It means this. You know what the word economy means? Stewardship. So when they talk about the economy is suffering, what does that mean? The stewardship is suffering. The economy is improving. The stewardship is improving. That's what it means. Joseph was charged with managing the affairs of Potiphar's house. He was not charged with having an affair, and he was charged with having an affair with Potiphar's wife, for which he did not. But the role of steward is not something that just happens to emerge. Its foundations are found in Genesis. And it says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of heaven, and over the livestock and over all the earth. So God created man in His image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds and the heavens and every living thing that moves. From the very beginning of the Bible you see the issue of property rights. It's God's property. You have the right to be the steward of it. It is foundation to our nation, and it is the one thing that is the great crack to our moral ethics in this country. And it is birthed because the church chose size over substance. It chose to preach transcendence instead of eminence. And it chose to preach a message that was social instead of salvific. And now the churches are falling. They said by 2070 in America there may be one Christian for every four. I don't even believe there's one Christian for every four now. And I believe those that beat their chest the strongest about it are the ones that are going to have the hottest rooms in hell. Because people that are saved, born again, don't take pride in it. Because they had nothing to do with it. It is all of the grace of God. And so, my brothers and sisters... I, I have nothing else to say, as Forrest Gump would say. That's all I have to say about that. Don't steal. Be a steward. Don't just sit there and say God sees it all. God's in it all. And do it because He has His eminence in all things and everything. And if you lack instruction, go to the Word of God.
and it will speak and set you straight. Would you stand?